For an early stage company, there's so much time spent before you reach your first enterprise client. For my next guest, Tyson Hartshorn, that client was Pfizer. My name is Owen Brown, and this is the fifth episode of The People Behind Innovation, where we speak with founders, investors, and innovators. Tyson's success in the tech startup space comes after an eight-year professional baseball career as a pitcher. Tyson and I discussed the key decisions he made to keep his company innately nimble and able to grow. We then shift over towards startup strategy regarding funding, target clients, sales cycles, and his experience being a participant and a mentor with an exponential impact. I hope you enjoy our conversation. and how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. So first off, uh, n- not many business owners can say that they've had a successful eight-year pro baseball career and then transitioned into being an entrepreneur. Would you mind um, sharing a little bit about your, your sports career for us? Sure. Yeah, I'm actually from a little tiny town in southeast Colorado called Lamar and uh, believe it or not, I, I think there's like five different, you know, young men who have been to the been to the big leagues or you know were drafted um, out of that little tiny town in about a ten year period. So there's just a rich history down there of sports and baseball. Um, and I was, you know, it was something I was good at and interested in, and uh, ended up getting drafted out of high school by the Toronto Blue Jays, and really was trying to decide whether I wanted to go the college route or, you know, sign and go play pro immediately. And, um, you know, they did, they did the Blue Jays offer me a a full ride scholarship at the time to basically anywhere I wanted to go. And so I knew I had that at the end of my career, no matter how it turned out. So I I went for it. Um, I'm kind of a risk taker. It's why I'm an entrepreneur. Um, And yeah, I had really kind of, kind of found my stride there toward those last couple of years and matured and, and started to do well in my career. And as a starting pitcher, when you're, when you're pitching well, you play a lot, you pitch more innings. And so just going for broke, I ended up hurting my elbow and had to have a surgery called Tommy John. Anyone that knows baseball knows pitchers have Tommy John surgeries all the time. Um, most of them are quite successful. Mine was not. And so, um, you know, I was about 27, 28 years old uh, when I finally decided that my arm wasn't going to get any better and I needed to figure out what I was going to do next. Um, I'd always had an interest in computers um, and my, my father had purchased a, the Tandy TRS-80, which was one of the very first home computers. And I learned to program basic on that. So I kind of just decided, hey, I'm starting my life over. And at that time, I just chose to study computer engineering and started heading down that route. So what went to your decision to stay in Colorado after your pro baseball career? 
Yeah, as, you know, playing baseball, I really got a chance to see a lot of the world and see a lot of the United States. Um, played all over the South and the East Coast, um, Northeast a lot, even even overseas a little bit. And so, um, I just I just love Colorado. I really do. My family was here, so there's always that draw. But um, I I always thought Colorado was such a good blend of people climate, fun things to do. I, you know, I enjoy my seasons. Um, and so it, it really was a place I could see coming and settling down and, uh, you know, growing my family and raising my family. And so um, I headed back. I actually moved um, to Colorado Springs in 2001. That was shortly after I'd kind of finished the baseball career and started my education here. And so kind of before we moved off this baseball topic, when I when I played in Little League, it seemed like every good pitcher had kind of their pitch. What was your signature pitch or um, like what were you what were you specialized at? Yeah, I think that's what finally clicked for me there at the end was I found my game. I um, I kind of just struggled before that to really figure out, you know, what is my pitching game and what's going to be effective. And um, I was messing around in the bullpen one day. Um, pretty much mess, messing around is a good word for it. I wasn't in the best of moods. I wasn't excited to go in and pitch. Um, it was in spring training. And so um, I just held the ball differently. Um, and in the nice, hot Florida muggy weather, you know, a little bit of sweat on my fingertips. And I discovered what's called a slip sinker. Um, it's kind of a fastball where you throw it with no seams. And so it spins a little slower and it sinks at the end. And I'm certainly, I didn't invent that pitch. Others have thrown it very well before, but I found that sinker that day and it became my game. I, I threw a, a mid to low nineties uh, sinker, um, had a hard slider and a changeup. And, and after that, the name of the game was just to try and throw it right down the middle and let people beat it into the ground and throw them out at first. And, you know, I wasn't a strikeout guy. Uh, but I was very efficient, you know, when you're, when you're getting people to hit the first couple pitches into the ground, then you can throw deep seven, eight, nine innings because you just don't wear your arm out. And so kind of shifting over to your experience as an entrepreneur, would you mind kind of talking a little bit about your company innately and where you really first got that idea? Yeah, I, I was working um, at an enterprise storage company called LSI. Um, which has been reacquired several times since then. I think most of what I worked on at the time is now part of Broadcom, but we were doing storage virtualization at the time. And as you know, storage virtualization is, is one of those fundamental technologies that enables the cloud. Um, I also had a BlackBerry about then, you know, so it was like the birth of the smartphone. And I looked at that and I said, wow, they, you know, they had these little mobile computers and you have this, this thing called the cloud, and that's going to absolutely transform the way businesses work um, all, all over the globe. And so being a young engineer, not knowing much, I just set out to basically build something cool, which was kind of a workflow management platform um, that is mobile ready and cloud based. And I didn't have really have a market at the time, which, you know, that just shows my ignorance at, the, at that time. But at an angel pitch event, I kind of got sucked into um, the animal health market. I was introduced to a gentleman that used to work for Merck Animal Health. There, he was also pitching his company and he made an introduction for me. 
And we really got pulled into that market dealing with all the regulation and tracking um, that goes on around the animal health space. And in one way or another, we've kind of always been in that market. Um, we've found a few adjacencies that are close that we're in, um, but I would say animal health, animal traceability, all that kind of stuff is really kind of in the core DNA of who innately is. What makes you interested about animal health and in specific the horse kind of racing industry? Yeah, you know, mostly because I see a lot of opportunity. Um, I, I do like that the innovations in those space have very real effects on not only animals, but people as well. Um, they improve um, the food we eat and how we distribute that food and how we responsibly use vaccines and antibiotics and things like that. So, you know, there's a real mission behind, behind those technologies. It's not just to, um, you know, do something faster, do something cuter. I feel they're impactful. And the other thing that I think really helped me was coming from a rural background. Um, it wasn't a market I was afraid of where I, I felt like a lot of uh, young technologists would, would just kind of look over there in the agriculture and animal health space and scratch their heads or want no part of it because you do have to understand the people there. You have to understand how they think, you have to understand how, what they value and how they communicate. And I was able to do that. And so, you know, I wouldn't say I went into it with a with an absolute passion for the space, but I sure found it. Um, I found that I really enjoyed those people. Um, I really had a heart for what they did for a living, and I saw real opportunity for our technology in the space, and and it's been going strong ever since. So you mentioned you come from a rural background. Growing up, kind of, what was that experience like with? animals and with the people that take care of them yeah i'm lamar's a, a tiny town and it's it's largely farming and ranching um that that drove the economy there there's i think at the time there were eight thousand people there might be less than that now um, and so um while my family my immediate family had kind of gotten out of the farming business it's it's what my grandfather grew up in one of 12 children um, it's what many, many of my friends did. I would spend my summers on a combine or, you know, helping out in some fashion on a ranch somewhere. So it, it was things I was, I was familiar with. And I knew that people do that because, um, they're hardworking, uh, they value, um, some of the simplicity that that can bring to life. You know, it's kind of that mentality of just I get up every day at the crack of dawn. I work really hard until the sun goes down. Um, but, but I'm kind of in control of my life. You know, I don't necessarily answer to a boss or anything like that. And so farmers and ranchers in, in some of the truest sense are some of the original entrepreneurs. And I, I like that. And I, I did see why they did it and why they valued it. And I'm, I'm kind of able to resonate because I think some of that's in my DNA as well. When did you first realize that there's a tangible market for your product? And also, would you mind kind of describing your product as well? Yeah, so when I, when I try to describe our product, it's, it's a little bit of, um, you know, type form or some of those form-based technologies where you can take something that's traditionally been a spreadsheet and a piece of paper and easily convert that to, to digital. And then marry that with something like Trello, if people are familiar, most people are familiar with Trello, which manages 
you know, workflow. You have all these things in play and it's very visual. You can see where things are at. And so that's what we do. Essentially, we, we help these companies take their existing forms and processes. Uh, most of them are quite complicated. There's, um, there's oversight, there's regulation, both from the FDA and USDA that governs a lot of what goes on in that space. And um, it really has the effect of, in, of inhibiting um, economics, to be honest with you. Um, it slows everything down. And so our key goal was to allow these companies to start to streamline and automate a lot of this so that the economics around the entire market could just could, would, would speed up, become more accurate, less error prone, um, and just faster. And so we do that. We enable a lot of these uh, complicated things that are, you know, veterinary oversight, FDA oversight, import export, interstate movement, um, all these different governances to become simplified and streamlined for these people so they can focus on what they do well. And, and who are your main clients and what was that experience like getting your, your first client? Yeah, it's, it's a crazy story, but my first ever client was Pfizer. Um, they have a, they have a animal health side of their company called Zoetis. Um, but my very first client was, was there and, um, I didn't have much technology at the time, but they were uh, really fascinated and had initiatives um, that my technology helped enable. Um, still to this day, I think we have something like 14 Fortune 500 or larger clients and we're, we're still a small company. And so traditionally our, our customers have either been uh, large food producers, um, mostly in the protein space or large um, pharmaceutical companies in the animal health space or veterinarians. Um, now, by the nature of working with those three groups all the time, we touch farmers and ranchers and distributors and retailers and things like that. But predominantly who we sell to are one of those three um, stakeholder types. What was that conversation with Pfizer like? Because I, I can imagine you didn't have a, a huge company, you didn't have a company um, structure yet and you didn't exactly have many clients and so how did you pitch them showing that your company would add value to such a large pharmaceuticals company yeah and this i think is is the very crux of a startup um, you either you either achieve this or you don't because i you know i started with an idea um, i knew what i was talking about but it was largely just an idea and I started trying to find funding and I was doing that through angels and a gentleman here in town, a, a successful investor and entrepreneur himself in the tech space. He, he said, your technology sounds amazing, but I don't, I, I don't have any proof that you have a market. So if you will go uh, find a client or find clients for your technology, I'll invest in your company. I'll be your first investor. And I thought that was crazy at the time. How am I, how am I going to go get a single client when I don't have the money to go invest and build anything, right? I still pretty much have an idea. And so what I think every good young entrepreneur about is, is about casting vision. That's really what you have um, when you first start out. And you need to cast that vision for people that are your prospective clients. You need to cast that vision for 
prospective investors and you need to cast that vision for your first employees. And I did that. I just, I got in front of Zoetis. I listened to what they wanted and I, I told them my vision for how our technology could really make that happen and start to streamline things and create better connections and insight to their clients. And they went for it. You know, it, it wasn't a lot. Um, it was a toe in the water kind of project for them, but it was big for me. And not only did I get my first client signed, but then investors started to show up. Um, and I, I really do want to encourage entrepreneurs as best they can to take that approach. First, first customers, uh, then investment and, and not vice versa. And more and more investors are savvy enough to ask that question anyway. Um, you mentioned that you took angel funding kind of rel relatively early on with that in investor in the Springs. How did you navigate funding as a startup, navigating bootstrapping versus taking funding? And like, how'd you do that? I knew I needed something to get started. Um, I was, a, I was still a young man. Uh, I didn't have a lot, you know, to personally invest it and have enough to personally invest to get, get me there. So I knew it was going to take some funding. Um, it was just the kind of technology where I wasn't going to be able to bootstrap any kind of MVP uh, by myself. So I raised a little money. I, I raised as little as I thought it would take. Um, and then I, you know, I went out and started to develop the market. A lot of things didn't work like I expected them to. And some things did. And as we continued to work on that market, you just open up new introductions and new networks and new opportunities. And we've kind of just found our way through that and, and figured out how to make it work. And I would say all this time later, um, innately essentially was founded back in 2008, all this time later, we, we kind of have bootstrapped. Um, we've never uh, gone after any kind of institutional funding. We're 100% angel funded at this point. We're, we're also a profitable company at this point. And so while I did need early money to get going, um, ever since we, we have gotten by with as little outside investment as possible. And I think it's one of the absolute keys to our survival. So you've come a long way with your company since 2008. Have there been any major failures along the way with Innately that- Oh, so many, so yeah. many. Um, one of the biggest ones, I mentioned that first contract um, we were, I had, I had raised some initial funding and about a year and a half into kind of the, you know, the contract signing with Zoetis, um, who again is Pfizer's animal health division. Um, they had a management turnover. They had a director leave and a new director came in and he, he turned over his staff and he, he just did what he wanted with, with projects. And one of those projects was ours. And so we lost that project um, and it was killer for our company. Uh, we were, it's kind of all we had. It was going to be our, you know, kind of initial MVP. And so um, I basically shut the company down and I went back and took my old job or took a different job at LSI with an internal startup um, for about two years. And after that two years, I got a, you know, was contacted by Merck. And a couple of those people who we had worked with over at Zoetis had found their way over to Merck. Um, it's a relatively small industry and had talked about working with us and what we were working on. And Merck had a lot of interest in that. So 
the, the company was reborn out of the ashes as we got this fresh chance. And I'm so thankful for that, that two years, because as I mentioned, I was a, I was a young, naive um, engineer uh, when I first founded the company. But when I went back to work for LSI, I took a project management role and it was in a, a new startup, kind of an inside the company startup. So I didn't have to worry about funding. I didn't have to worry about trying to find people. You know, I just had to kind of focus on learning the business um, and helping get products built into market. And becoming a project manager gave me such a wider view of what it actually takes to create a successful company. I got to interact with manufacturing, um, test, engineering, marketing, sales, customers, you name it. So I kind of got to see things I had never been able to see before as an engineer. And it made me so much better of a business person so that when we got that opportunity with Merck and we came back, um, I really was a different person. Um, I understood so much better what it took and we have been going strong ever since. In our current accelerator, there's a few companies that are deciding whether to take an approach that targets large major clients that might give out like higher revenues to the startups than if they were to approach a shotgun approach to a lot of smaller companies that will pay, pay less revenue. What, what kind of advice would you have to those accelerator companies? Yeah, I, I don't know that there's a, I don't know that there's a defined answer. I, you know, I think every entrepreneur has to look at the market in front of them and, and weigh a number of factors. Um, big companies, um, in my experience, as I just described, um, they can be very slow to make decisions. They are very bureaucratic. You can, you can have a sales cycle, you know, anywhere from a year to two years. And that's quite normal because they make decisions as very large groups and generally on budget cycles. And so if you can survive that, um, the pros of the large companies is they're generally well-funded, you know, giving you a quarter million or half million dollars to uh, deliver them a proof of concept or some initial product is, is not a big deal to them. Um, as long as you can survive that sales cycle and as long as you understand, just like happened to us, that be, because it's, you know, $250,000, $500,000 or something like that is nothing to them, it's also nothing when it comes to trimming budgets and they will cut that kind of stuff in a heartbeat. So you just have to know that risk going in. The smaller companies make decisions much quicker, right? You, you might have uh, one or two decision makers there. You just have to convince them. Budget's going to be a lot tighter. So price is going to matter to them. They're going to be, they're not going to want to take as big of a risk with the money they're giving you. So you're generally going to have to have a much more compelling and finished product or concept when you come to them. Um, but again, if you, if you can figure out how to make it work for them financially, figure out how you can de-risk and incentivize to do that and kind of take more of a group approach where, you know, hey, you should come in because these five others are coming in. It can be much better because uh, the relationships can be developed deeper. Um, you know, they're not going to be so fickle and want to, and want to change course. Uh, the management is less likely to turn over. Those can be very rewarding. So again, there are risks both ways. And I think it's very dependent on the market and the product you have on which approach is the better one to take. 
and that discussion about understanding how Pfizer is a large corporation that might need to cut projects, that kind of makes sense. Are there any decisions in your company, any situations that have happened that you had no clue would happen going into the founding of your company? Yeah, I mean, that is one of them. Um, that was a big shocker to, to know that that project was, was cut. Um, I've had projects where uh, you know, you're cruising along and then something comes up and you don't hear from anyone over there for two months. And that, that's just crazy to me. I don't understand, um, you know, how communications and, and you'll think the project's dead and they'll call you two months later and say, Oh man, sorry about that. We had a, we had this other thing come up and fire drill and, and let's get going. And, and it's just shocking to you that, you know, that can happen at a company like that. Um, they can choose to just completely change course. Um, they're not telling you to go away um, and they waste a lot of money in it, but they don't care. They may get halfway down uh, a certain, you know, scope or project with you and decide they want to completely change course and they're going to fund that change of course. And, and you just kind of have to decide if you want to go that way with them or not. And so, you, you know, they just, you have to remember with those big companies um, where you kind of play. Um, if you're, you know, a, a sub $5 million project for most large companies, that's down in the noise. And so expecting, you know, some lull in attention, some shifts in direction, the, the volatility of, of projects coming and going and, and new leadership possibilities, it, it's all very real. And, you know, they're the dog and you're the tail, generally. Um, and one of, the, one of the challenges I always found was to try and break that perception. Uh, to, to, to present, hey, I'm actually the one that knows what's going on here. Uh, you need it. You're so busy that you can't do this and I can do it for you. So I'm going to lead or we're going to lead as a company and, and we're going to just drive forward. And, and now you're listening to us. You're relying on us to get things done. And we couldn't do that at first because we didn't have the credibility. But as we began to execute and build successful product and, and, and have successful projects, um, we started to get some of that and that started to work for us where we were in the driver's seat, they were tuned into what we were doing. And um, I just found that the, the attention to the project, the buy-in on the project was stronger than from those big companies. And so shifting over to your involvement with XI, kind of what what programs were you involved with? Did you learn any lessons as a result of our programs? And like, what was your experience like in this ecosystem? Yeah, I think I'm, I, we may be the only company that has been in every single one of XI's programs. And I have actually been a mentor as well. So we've, we've touched it all. Um, and I've got this, I've, I've seen it from the company side and from the mentor side. And I've learned a lot through it. I, I think that the, the mentor approach at XI is an excellent one. Um, programming is great. I've learned some wonderful things in the programming where a guest speaker comes in and you know they've got an hour to talk about their time and, and man, I'll just pick up a nugget from one of those sessions pretty much every time and figure out how to apply it. But it's really the mentorship where someone can 
spend the time to get to know you, your market, your company, your product, a lot of your challenges and dynamics and things like that, and actually then start to offer advice. Because I feel so much, you know, general advice is, is rarely that useful. But boy, when, when someone can get that specific and understand you and then really start to bring an outside perspective and challenge some of the things you've done and the thinking you have, um, it's, it's so great. Um, not to mention just once you start to build those relationships with the leadership there, with the mentors, with the other companies, we've had business opportunities open up that way. We have found employees that way. Um, that, that networking and relational aspect of it is so valuable as well. What has your relationship looked like with companies in our programs? And what have been some of the main lessons that you've taught companies or gone in and understood their company and then given them a recommendation going forward? I actually started as a mentor. Um, that was my very first gig and, and liked it so much that um, our company then got involved with the Amplify and, and we're, we're in the very end of the Ascend program right now. So I, maybe I did it a little bit backwards, but once we're done with the Ascend program, I very much want to get involved again in, um, in XI in that mentorship or advising role because um, I really do value it. And it's, it's just as valuable to me on the mentor side because I would meet with these young companies. And again, I mentored at the accelerator level. So I was getting, um, I was getting people that, that had never done anything like this before. Um, you know, basically their whole idea was a slide deck at this point. Um, you know, their pro forma showed them making a billion dollars in five years, all the same <laughs> naivety that I had when I came into it. And so I always tell people I bought the college, right? I made all those mistakes, probably the expensive way, um, because I, I was a lone wolf. I didn't, I didn't know um, or appreciate the networks that are available to young entrepreneurs and the value that can bring. And so to just have someone that's been down the road a little bit steer you away from making a mistake that is costly, you know, it costs you money and time and people and opportunities um, and steer you down more of the right path. Those, those have immense value, even if there's just a handful of those um, in a time that you're at a program at XI, the whole thing has been well worth it. And of course, XI basically offering all these services to entrepreneurs for free. Um, I, you know, I don't know why anyone would not want to spend every, every moment they can get uh, talking to the other companies and talking to the mentors and, and trying to learn those lessons uh, without having to go through the pain themselves. Since 2008, um, I'm sure that you've learned a lot of lessons throughout your time with Innately. What are like three of the main traits that you find are the most important for an entrepreneur? Um, I'd say one of the first ones I've thought about is, you know, at first I was, I was very aggressive and took just about any risk imaginable. And I think entrepreneurs have to have some of that in them to make it. So it's not a bad thing, but particularly when you're trying to figure out how to bootstrap. Um, and I think that's such a good approach for a lot of reasons anymore. Um, a, a good amount of caution is very healthy. And I'm a much more cautious person now. 
I really think through and investigate decisions uh, before I make them. And while I think most people would still identify me as moving fast and taking risks, I've, I've very much changed um, how I treat big decisions when it comes to product direction, uh, when it comes to employees, um, employee retention, company culture, things like that. It's just, it's just worth thinking a lot about those because those are big decisions and they have big impacts and, and nothing ever happens as fast as you think it will. Um, the second one I would say is really to try and build, build team trust. Um, you have to get people around you that you can trust. Otherwise, I think it, it just burns you out so fast. Um, you always want to do everything yourself. You always have a vision for how everything should go. At first, that's all it is. It's, it's you and your idea, and it becomes your baby. And learning to trust people with that and let them go and let them, they will make mistakes, just like you make mistakes, and that's okay. Um, and, but enabling people to do that and have autonomy and, and trusting portions of your vision and culture and company with those people is absolutely critical because you cannot grow a company and scale a company on your own. And then third, I would say, um, hold, hold your ideas pretty lightly. Um, always be willing. And, and, and you know, I think holding your ideas lightly equates somewhat to humility. Understand that everything you think is true and everything you, and the way you think everything should go may be wrong. Um, I think you need to really make people convince you to change your mind because you know, you can't just follow every piece of advice this way and that. But if you keep hearing the same thing over and over again, if your customers are telling you, if your employees are telling you, your board, your outside people, your family, your spouse, whoever, you got to be able to hear and listen to that stuff. Um, and, and as hard as it may be, you know, that's what creates those pivots. That's what creates those business model changes that so many successful entrepreneurs will point back to and say, that was the thing that finally made us click and made us successful. So keep your ears open for that stuff. Seek it and have the courage to, to change things. And, and so before we go, one, one final question for you. In, in the next three to five years, what are some of the goals that you have for Innately? If they were to reach so-and-so target, what would you set that as? I think tradition teaches us that those need to be financial. And I've, I've kind of stopped setting financial goals. Um, there's so many things in that that you can't control. And so I look very much more towards um, my team and how I want my team to build out and the kind of responsibility I, I want to be able to turn over and the kind of feedback I want to have from our customers. And so to me, I just want to see that continue. I'm, I'm so focused right now as we continue to grow on creating leadership in the company and, and these functional groups that just work well together and are tuned and, uh, and can be just absolutely trusted to get things done. And I, I know if we're doing that well, then we're gonna deliver good products and our, our customers are gonna have good experiences with us. And I know if that's happening, then we are going to continue to grow financially. Now, I think personally, 
I don't know that I'm ever going to be a, a big company CEO or even a medium company CEO. Um, so much of what it takes to run a larger company are just not my passion. Um, I really do value knowing every single one of my employees, talking to them, having some type of relationship and mentorship with them. And you can't do that when you're, you know, a hundred employees big. So I think at some point, if we continue to grow like that, it'll, it'll maybe be time for someone else to take the reins and I'm fine with that. And I do hope that happens in the next five years. I, I really do. But who knows? I just, so much of that is out of my control. I just want to focus very much on what, on what we're doing, especially as a team. Tyson, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Owen. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Tyson, for your time and thoughts on early stage business development. You make a huge impact at XI by supporting other founders and helping create this community. And it was fascinating to hear how far your business has come from having no customers and very little developed technology to now having 14 Fortune 500 clients and built out technology with only small amounts of angel funding. I hope you keep up the progress with Innately.